Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. This is the uh, Public Thought Podcast Ministry of Christ for Kentucky. My name is Robert Cunningham, and I am the uh, Director of Christ for Kentucky. And what I've been doing is recording some episodes unpacking the mission, philosophy, strategy, and so forth of our new organization. Uh, we'll, we'll record one more after this one uh, before moving on to some of the content that maybe you've come to expect from this podcast where we look at uh, issues of the day through the lens of the Christian worldview. Um, but it was important to me to spend some time helping you understand our organization that we have started. Now, I did take a little detour last week to discuss the Asbury revival, uh, awakening, movement, whatever language you want to use. As I said in the podcast last week, they're not wanting to label this, but I know a lot of people online are trying to label it. But I did feel like uh, the podcast of Christ for Kentucky should probably discuss that the whole world is talking about Christ in Kentucky. Uh, so I offered my thoughts on Asbury, and that podcast got a lot of attention. Uh, I got a lot of feedback. It seemed to be a helpful resource. I did an interview with uh, Glenn Scrivener and Speak Life, a ministry over in the United Kingdom. Um, that interview went crazy. I think it's like over 400,000 views now. So clearly there was a palpable intrigue surrounding what's been taking place here in Kentucky over the past few weeks. And I don't want to be a cynic about that intrigue. It's okay to be excited about something that is clearly unique. It's okay to want it to be a true and authentic movement of God. It's okay to enjoy what has transpired at Asbury and pray for it to happen elsewhere. But at some point, we are going to have to come down from the proverbial mountaintop and return to the ordinary demands of the Christian life. I said in one of the interviews I did, it might have been Glenn's, that American Christians have become addicted to the mountaintop. What's happened is we've been discipled by cultural rhythms of instant gratification, excessive entertainment, constant stimulation, uh, amazing experiences, just bigger, better, more, more, more. We Americans are a gluttonous people. And then we impose those cultural experiences upon the Christian life. But the problem is that the Christian life doesn't follow the path of American excess. Jesus says it follows a narrow, difficult, cruciform path. So eventually, everyone's going to have to come down from the Asbury mountaintop, pick up their cross, and embrace the daily death of following Jesus. I'm not going to be a mountaintop cynic, but neither am I going to be a mountaintop addict. It's been a blessed few weeks here in Kentucky. Thousands, literally thousands, have basked in the presence of God's glory and love, as well we should. But what we must not do is what Peter sought to do when Jesus took him up on the mountaintop to show him his glory in the transfiguration. And Peter's instinct was to build tents and camp out on the mountain. I don't blame him. I would want to do the same. But Jesus told Peter, we can't stay here. And so they go down from the mountain, and tellingly, the first thing that happens 
is Jesus does battle with demonic forces. And that's the point I'm trying to make. What transpired at Asbury was amazing, a once-in-a-generation experience, it would seem. But there are principalities to battle. There is evil in Kentucky that cannot be ignored. There is injustice that needs justice. There are divisions that need to be reconciled. There is darkness that needs to be exposed to the light. There are lost who need to be found. There is so much work to be done. The kingdom demands we not camp out in Wilmore, (laughs) avoiding the costs of justice, mercy, righteousness, truth, love, and so forth. And speaking candidly, the kingdom fruit that flows from what has transpired the past few weeks will itself determine the significance of that gathering. I said in my podcast last week, revivals are less sensational and more transformational. And so not only must we eventually come down from the mountaintop, but the significance of the mountaintop is revealed in its ability to transform the valley below. And that's where I think Christ for Kentucky can help in some small way. As I have outlined our mission over the past few weeks, it's it's obvious that it's not a missional strategy built upon revivalism. I mean, does public theology and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth sound like revival to you? No. But the kingdom of God has never and must never be dependent upon revivals. We welcome them. We celebrate them. We pray for them. But we must not depend upon them. And even when God does see fit to bless us with revival, which I hope and pray is what has happened in my state, there is still a need to steward that aftermath well. I think that's our ministry contribution to this moment. How do we ensure that this wasn't merely a three-week worship service void of any formational or reformational impact upon Kentucky? The aftermath of Asbury needs to be ordered around a compelling public theology and a competent public strategy all in service of the common good of the commonwealth. That's what I hope we can provide in some small part. I'm not arrogant enough to put our organization forth as a solution here, but we'd like to be a part of the solution going forth in Kentucky. We would like to be a bridge of sorts from the mountaintop experience of the past few weeks to the work in the valley in the years to come. So in light of all of that, let's continue the discussion that we've been having introducing our ministry. And what I would like to do with this episode is take a step back, and I mean way back, uh, to tell the story of what God is doing in our world in order for us to find our place within it. And the reason why I felt the need to do this is that I have been making a lot of theological, philosophical, biblical assumptions in these podcasts. But these are assumptions I'm not sure I should make. I think a lot of evangelical Christians assume that the Christian life is merely a personal relationship with Jesus, with very little social implications, And the essence of cultural engagement is evangelizing non-Christians to likewise commit to a personal relationship with Jesus until we all get to escape this world and go to heaven someday. If that's your view of Christianity, then candidly, you're going to really struggle to comprehend 
or get excited about Christ for Kentucky's work. So two podcasts ago, I repudiated the social gospel while defending the idea that the gospel is social. Make sure to go back and listen to that if you have not. Now in this episode, I want to tell the grand story of a gospel, of a good news that is social. Simply put, the story of God's redemption of all things. Let me frame it with three verses that reveal the history of God's redemption. One from the beginning of the story, one from the climactic tipping point of the story, one from the glorious completion of the story. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.20, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the arc of history in three verses. God creates heaven and earth. Jesus reconciles heaven and earth, all culminating in a new heaven and a new earth. Let me flesh it out for us so that we can see our place within the story. This one is going to be more philosophical. I'm warning you up front. If you like that sort of thing, this podcast is for you. If you're a pragmatist, then still listen, but look forward to next week's episode when we will get very practical. But this theological foundation is really important to me. Uh, It's important for everyone to understand the philosophy behind our work. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The significance there is that originally heaven and earth are one. So, heaven in scripture is God's space. Earth is our space. And originally, the two were together as one, celestial and terrestrial. Creator and creation together in union as one. And within the terrestrial, earthly realm, God creates image bearers, these icons of the divine that image our creator and serve as ambassadors, his representatives, his authority over creation. So we are given a mandate from our creator to fill the earth and subdue it, literally entrusted with dominion over the earth. Dominion, not domination. Dominion in the sense that we were to exercise rule on earth in a way that brings glory to the creator and shalom, uh, peace, flourishing to creation. I think there is this misnomer that if we never sinned and fell uh, from our original state, then we would have merely frolicked about Eden forever. That's not the case. God entrusted to us an unbridled creation, full of limitless potential, and essentially said, go, discover and develop my creation as my sub-creators. Advancement was the mandate. Technology, art, business, education, engineering, music, commerce. We would have constructed cities and communities with infrastructures and institutions and neighborhoods and hobbies We would have explored space and technology and all of these things. Basically, all that image bearers have been doing throughout the history of advancement, but all in the service to the glory of God and the good of creation. But of course, that is not 
what transpired. Image bearers rebelled against the god they image and uh, plunged earth into the ruin and misery where we find ourselves now. We still do what image bearers are destined to do, but we do it unto our glory, not God's glory, and the ruin of creation, not the shalom of creation. And because of this sinful dominion, there is now a severance of heaven and earth. God's holy space and our sinful space cannot coexist, and thus we are cast from God's presence into the ruin of human history, but not without hope. The entirety of the um, Old Testament story is essentially misery and destruction interrupted by prophetic hope. Hope that God was going to do something to repair what we have done. Specifically, God would send someone, a Messiah, who would repair heaven and earth. This, of course, is Jesus. When you read the life of Jesus in the New Testament Gospels, what you notice is an oasis of Eden on earth. He is quite literally heaven on earth. Everything wrong is made right in his presence. But the ultimate wrong that needs to be made right would require more than his presence. It would require his sacrifice. So the Messiah offers himself as the atoning bridge between heaven and earth. Heaven's holy judgment poured out on earth's sinfulness, landing upon one lonely, reconciling sacrifice hanging from a cross. And then they bury the Messiah, but not for long. Earth's barren, fallen, cursed ground gives birth to heaven's living hope. But, and this is the key, the resurrection of Jesus is described as a first fruit, not a singular event but a first event, a first fruit, meaning a resurrection harvest is coming, a harvest that will one day cover every square inch, pun absolutely intended, every square inch of earth will undergo a resurrection of sorts. Easter was the first day of a remade world, and that Easter campaign has been entrusted to the followers of the risen Jesus. Here's a verse that many Christians love, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I wonder how you interpret that. What if you were to interpret it literally? What if you truly are the beginnings of the new creation that is to come? Living, breathing ambassadors of the world made right. You remember the second verse that I read for us was that through Jesus, God was reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. Well, right after Paul calls us new creations, he says that we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is reconciling heaven and earth, and our lives are his ministry of that reconciliation. We will go into the practicalities in the next episode, I promise. But for now, your life is the means by which Jesus is making this world right again. Your life is the conduit of on earth as it is in heaven. You are reclaiming, redeeming, 
recovering, repairing, re. Christianity is a re-religion. Its heavenly promise is not something altogether new. It's a promise of renew. And that renewal campaign is the Christian mission on earth. Yes, of course, that includes reconciling sinners to God through the salvation of Jesus. But friends, you are part of something even bigger. You're not just saving individuals, you're saving the planet. How? What does that mean for your daily life? We're going to talk about that in the next episode. But for now, generation after generation after generation of these new creation followers of Jesus will yield the new creation to which their lives point. Like our Savior before us, we too will be raised from the dead. And the world we will find ourselves in will be the Eden we once lost. Or as Revelation says, it will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's the story where we find ourselves. That's the story the Christian labors to see come to pass until they themselves pass away. And that's the story behind the mission of Christ for Kentucky. We are seeking to make Kentucky look like its heavenly destiny. Christ for Kentucky is neither a conservative or progressive organization. Don't force us to choose between that worldly binary. If you want to ask me personally, I, I lean conservative politically. Uh, fiscally, socially, I lean conservative. But I also see the deficiencies in conservatism. Christ for Kentucky is neither a conservative or progressive organization. We are a resurrection organization. When one of my scholar heroes, Leslie Newbegin, was asked his thoughts about the future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the days to come? Newbegin brilliantly replied, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying, I don't see things from this simplistic worldly perspective. I see a different story. I subscribe to a different story, a transcendent story defined by Jesus risen from the dead, not as a singular event, but as the first fruit of what is to come. The problem with conservatives is that they have a nostalgia for the past while ignoring the evils of the past. They long for days gone by for the wholesomeness of Andy Griffith's Mayberry, for example. But they forget that Mayberry took place in the 60s, arguably the most tumultuous decade of our nation's history. You don't see racial segregation intentions. You don't see struggle for civil rights. You don't see the Vietnam War and anti-war protests. You don't see political assassinations. None of that shows up in Mayberry. And so goes the conscious memory of the American conservative and nostalgia for the past while uh, neglecting or ignoring the evils of the past. In contrast, the problem with progressives is that they have a nostalgia for change while ignoring the evils of progress. They long for days to come when we are able to break free from the traditional chains of the past and get to finally remake the world into something they think is better. And yet, like conservatives blind to the past evils, progressives are blind to present evils, assuming that every step of human advancement is a moral achievement. 
History has proven that is a lie every time. Where does the Christian fit into this? They don't. They do not have a nostalgic idolatry for the past, nor do they have a nostalgic idolatry for progress, because both are idolizing a chapter of a fallen story. Christians have a nostalgia for the resurrection. If you want to talk in terms of past and future, that's fine. Just go all the way back and all the way forward. We have a nostalgia for Eden that was lost and a nostalgia for a new heavens and new earth that is to come. That's our story. That's our aim. That's what we labor toward on earth as it is in heaven is the nature of our nostalgia. And specifically for us, it's in Kentucky as it is in heaven. That's what we are longing for, praying for, and laboring for. Now, I've taught on this theology enough to realize that it is screaming for practicalities and applications. Hopelessly idealistic. What does this even mean for my real life? I get it, but it was important for me that we didn't rush into pragmatics, the theology behind our organization, the reason for why we are seeking to do what we do matters to me, but I will not leave us there. I will explain exactly what all of this means, practically speaking, both for our organization and for my life and yours in next week's episode of Every Square.